For an interactive version of this episode, subscribe to Criminal AF, available wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit www.criminalafpod.com. Twenty-two-year-old Timothy Evans, married Beryl Thornley, barely eighteen years old, on September twentieth, nineteen forty-seven, after dating for the previous nine months. Timothy's life up to this point was nowhere near perfect. Born November twentieth, nineteen twenty-four, in Martha Tidville, Wales, Timothy had a rough start. His father had abandoned the family in April of that year, leaving his mother, Thomasina, with a three-year-old daughter and a baby on the way. Timothy had difficulty learning to speak, and as a young child, developed a severe, blistering rash on his feet that made it nearly impossible to walk, preventing him from attending school for long periods of time. This resulted in Timothy being underdeveloped in his speech, social skills, and education, never fully learning how to read or write. The rash would never completely heal, so he would walk with a noticeable limp well into his adult life. In 1933, Timothy's mother would remarry and welcome a younger sister. The family would move to London in 1935, but Timothy returned to Mirtha Tidville for a short period of time to work in the coal mines until he had quit because of his feet. He returned to London in 1939 to live again with his mother. Timothy was known as a strange fellow. For years, he would come up with fantastic stories of his achievements and accomplishments, knowing full well none of this was true as did the people who would be on the receiving end of these stories. Timothy would occasionally have run-ins with the law, most notably for stealing a car. He developed a drinking habit that would often cause him to become violent. In 1947, he went on a blind date with a young woman named Beryl Thornley. They would marry in September of that year and reside with Timothy's mother on St. Mark's Road in Notting Hill. In 1948, Beryl learned she was pregnant so the young Evans family would move a short distance away to the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place in the Ladbrook Grove neighborhood of Notting Hill. They shared the residence with an elderly gentleman who was hospitalized for most of the time, living in a middle flat, and a middle-aged couple living on the ground floor flat. Life at Rillington Place was very difficult for Timothy and Beryl. It became harder once their daughter, Geraldine, was born on October 10, 1948. Financial difficulties were always at the root of their problems, along with Timothy's drinking, which would increase from all the stress of raising a family on little income. Arguments would become prevalent between the two, and Timothy would become physical with Beryl, witnessed by neighbors on numerous occasions. Just when things couldn't possibly become worse, in 1949, Beryl told Timothy that she was again pregnant. Knowing that they could not afford bringing another child into their family, Beryl told Timothy that she wanted an abortion, which was illegal at the time. Weeks had gone by since Timothy's mother had seen Timothy, Beryl, or Geraldine. Thomasina was very close with Beryl, and a day would rarely pass without the two of them communicating. The last thing Thomasina was told by Timothy was that Beryl and Geraldine had left London to visit her father in Brighton. By November of 1949, Thomasina had learned that Timothy had left London as well, returning to Mirtha Tidville to stay with an aunt and uncle. 
On November 30th, 1949, the aunt received a letter from Thomasina inquiring about the whereabouts of Timothy, Beryl, and Geraldine, and the aunt approached Timothy with the letter. Timothy left the home, walked to the Martha Tidville police station, and approached the officer on duty. I have disposed of my wife, Timothy told the officer. Confused, the officer asked what he meant by that. Timothy responded with, I have put her down the drain. Speaking with detectives, Timothy explained that his wife had become pregnant and wanted an abortion. He stated that on November 7th, he went to the local cafe to meet a man who gave him pills that would abort the fetus, which he gave to Beryl. When he returned from work the next day, he found Beryl dead. He panicked and disposed of her body in a drain outside of their flat. He brought baby Geraldine to an unnamed family and left for Martha Tidville. The police contacted London authorities, who inspected the drains outside of the home, but found nothing, noting that it took three men to lift the drain cover, making it impossible for one man, especially someone like Timothy, to lift the cover themselves. When confronted with this information, Timothy changed his story. He now stated that the neighbor on the first floor flat performed a fatal abortion on Beryl, and he is the one who disposed of her body while Timothy was at work. The neighbor then told Timothy that he sent Geraldine to an unnamed family in East Acton and that Timothy should leave town until everything blew over. Scared, Timothy did as he was told. On December 2nd, London police searched 10 Rillington Place for evidence into the disappearance of Beryl and Geraldine. They spoke to the ground floor neighbor and his wife, who both said that Timothy and Beryl would fight constantly, often physical and Timothy became overly stressed when he found out about Beryl's pregnancy. Police searched the outdoor wash house, and behind a stack of boards, police found the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine, wrapped in a green tablecloth from the Evans home. They were both strangled to death, and Beryl showed no signs of an attempted abortion. Presented with this evidence, Timothy changed his confession a third time, now stating that he and Beryl got into an argument over money. Enraged, he strangled Beryl with a piece of rope and strangled Geraldine the following day. He placed both of their bodies in the wash house and fled to Martha Tidville. Immediately after his arrest, Timothy publicly retracted his confessions and again placed blame on the downstairs neighbor, stating that he had no idea that Geraldine had been killed until the police found the baby in the wash house. Timothy Evans' trial began in January of 1950. The star witness was the ground floor neighbor, who stated under oath that he had witnessed Timothy physically assault Beryl on numerous occasions, and on the night of November 8th, the last day Beryl and Geraldine were seen alive, he heard them arguing, then heard a loud thud and the fighting had stopped. Timothy took the stand in his own defense, the only defense witness to be called, and again said he was innocent of the murders. Asked why he would confess to such a horrific crime, Timothy stated that he was so distraught over finding out his daughter was killed, he didn't care what happened to him. The trial lasted only three days, and Timothy Evans was found guilty and sentenced to death after the jury deliberated for only 40 minutes. On March 9, 1950, after a failed appeal, Timothy Evans was hanged in Pentonville Prison. Many rejoiced that Timothy was dead, but what they didn't realize at the time was that the Crown may have just killed an innocent man.
three years after the execution of Timothy Evans in March of 1953, a new resident at 10 Rillington Place, Beresford Brown, had asked the landlord if he could use the kitchen in the recently vacated ground floor flat, to which the landlord agreed. Brown entered the flat, and as he was hanging shelving in the kitchen, he found that a section of the wall was hollow, merely covered with wallpaper. He tore back the wallpaper to reveal a small pantry, and within this pantry were the bodies of three women. Police were quickly notified and began a more thorough search of the property than the one conducted a little over three years earlier for Timothy Evans. In the garden, they found two more bodies. Tearing back the floorboards of the flat, another body was found. In all, six bodies were found during the search, and if police would have done a more thorough search when investigating Evans, they could have easily found the two bodies in the garden, as there was a human thigh bone used to prop up a fence. The man who they now believed was responsible for all of these murders was also the Crown's primary witness used to convict and hang Timothy Evans, John Reginald Halliday Christie. John Christie was born April 8, 1899, in Northaram in Yorkshire, the sixth of seven children. John had a tumultuous relationship with the rest of his family. His father, who had become abusive with his children over trivial offenses, and Christie's mother and older sisters were controlling, overprotective, and would play mind games with him, one minute coddling him, and the next bullying him incessantly. His mother would also emasculate him and treat him as if he were weak. Because of this, Christie would grow into a man who would be a control-obsessed hypochondriac who was unable to perform sexually unless he had absolute control over a woman. Known as a bright teenager who excelled in mathematics and history, he quit school by the age of 15 and began work in a movie theater as a projectionist. When Christie was of age, he enlisted in the British Army during World War I and served as a signalman prior to being involved in a mustard gas attack in June of 1918, which he claimed left him temporarily blind and a mute for three years, but those close to him believed it was just a call for attention. By the age of 19, after spending his previous years impotent and unable to have a healthy sexual relationship, he found that the only way he could maintain an erection was if he was with a prostitute, where he could act on his deviances and rape fantasies. He would frequent prostitutes often and would continue to do so after he met his future wife, Ethel Waddington. Christie and Ethel moved to Sheffield after their marriage. His impotence would play a major role throughout their early years, as he could not bring himself to assert his sexual control over Ethel, as he did with the prostitutes. Early in their marriage, Christie got a job working for the postmaster. He was arrested for stealing mail and was sent to prison for three months. Shortly after returning home, he was put on probation for charges of violence. Word was spreading that Christie was frequenting prostitutes. He left Ethel and moved to London. Ethel stayed behind in Sheffield and began work as a typist. Four years after he left, Christie found himself in prison again for nine months after being convicted of two thefts. Upon release, Christie worked a series of menial jobs and moved in with a prostitute and would become violent with her. In one altercation, Christie hit the woman over the head with a cricket bat, who was sent back to prison for six months. 
He was later accused of violence against another woman, but there wasn't sufficient evidence to charge him. A few years later, he was arrested again for stealing a car from a priest who was helping him. His life was spiraling out of control, and there was only one person who he felt could make things right. He got in contact with Ethel and asked her to move to London. Reluctantly, she agreed, not knowing what type of man her husband had become. After nearly ten years of separation, Christie and Ethel were joined again in 1933. In the late 1930s, with World War II just about to break out, Christie applied to become a volunteer for the War Reserve Police. He was accepted, without any look into his previous background, and was stationed as a special constable for Harrow Road Police. He took this appointment very seriously, maybe too seriously, as he earned a nickname, the Himmler of Rillington Place. He used this position in uniform to follow women, and he bored a peephole in his flat to keep an eye on his neighbors. These were the best four years of Christie's life, and took advantage of the authority he was given as well as the frequent trips Ethel would take to visit relatives. Christie used these times to find women who would respond to his station as a constable, and in 1943, began a relationship with a woman he worked with at the police station. Her husband was away at war, and Christie took advantage of this opportunity. With Christie in a full-on relationship with this woman, her husband returned home from war to find Christie in his house. The husband severely beat Christie and threw him out on the street. It was because of this, Christie began inviting women back to his own home. It was here where three women and a baby were soon to meet their fate. Criminal AF will be back after this quick break. You've listened to hundreds of hours of podcast episodes, and I'm sure you've thought, I would love to start my own podcast. That's how I started Criminal AF. And I can tell you firsthand that starting this podcast was one of the best decisions I have ever made. But based on my experience, it can feel overwhelming if you don't know where to begin. Well, that's where Buzzsprout comes in. Buzzsprout is by far the easiest and best way to launch a professional podcast. They will help you get your podcast off the ground and into every major podcasting platform like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and so much more. You also get a great looking podcast website audio players to embed in your personal website, detailed analytics, tools to promote your episodes, and the list keeps going. Buzzsprout publishes new blog posts, podcast episodes, and YouTube videos every week so you can learn everything you need to know to start your own podcast. To join over 100,000 other podcasters and claim your $20 Amazon gift card with a paid subscription, follow the link in the episode description. This lets Buzzsprout know that Criminal AF sent you and helps support our show. Begin your podcasting journey today with Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. In August of 1943, Christie met a woman in a bar named Ruth First. Ruth was a lively young woman, 21, tall and had dark brown eyes and hair. She had a job at the munitions factory and lived not far from Christie. It is said that Ruth also worked part-time as a prostitute when she needed the money. Ruth would spend time at Christie's house while Ethel was away visiting family. But for Ruth, she would value their relationship more than Christie would. One day while Christie and Ruth were spending time together, 
Christy received a letter from Ethel that she would be home the following day. Ruth didn't want to leave, and she undressed, begging Christy to run away with her. The two began to have sex, and Christy put his hands around Ruth's neck. He began squeezing harder and harder, thrusting away as Ruth lost consciousness and died. There was no way Christy would run off with this woman, so he killed her, as she now became a liability. He wrapped her in her coat and placed her under the floorboards with her clothes. Ethel and her brother returned the following day, not suspecting a thing. Her brother stayed the night and left the next day, and Ethel returned to work. Christy used this time to move Ruth's body from under the floorboards to the wash house in the back. He began digging a hole in the garden when Ethel returned, saying he was just trying to tidy up the garden. He joined her for tea and returned to digging once Ethel went to bed. Christy moved Ruth's body one final time and buried her in the hole. In 1944, Christy began a new job at Ultra Radio Works and befriended a 32-year-old woman named Muriel Eady. Muriel lived with her aunt and had a steady boyfriend. Christy would invite Muriel and her boyfriend over for tea with he and Ethel on several occasions, and the four also attended the movie theater. In October of 1944, Ethel again left to visit relatives, and Christy thought of a plan to lure Muriel to his home. Muriel suffered from severe congestion of her nose and throat, and Christy, claiming to have medical experience from his time as a constable, invited her over for a remedy. He told Muriel that he created a special type of inhaler that would clear her sinuses. He held a tube up to Muriel's nose and mouth and placed a towel over her head. He told Muriel to breathe in deeply, and she may experience a little dizziness. As she inhaled, she was breathing in carbon monoxide. Muriel became very weak, and Christy took this opportunity to rape her as he choked her with her own stockings. Christy moved her body to the wash house as he dug a hole in the garden next to Ruth's first body. He placed Muriel fully clothed in the hole and buried her. Some time had passed, and as Christy was working in the garden, he dug up a femur bone and used it to prop up a trellis. In 1948, the Christies welcomed new neighbors to Town Millington Place. Timothy and Beryl Evans. They had been married less than a year and were expecting a baby. Timothy's sister, Eileen, had found the flat for them and helped them move in and decorate. One day after moving in, Eileen was alone in the flat when John Christie silently entered and startled her. He brought her a cup of tea, which she kindly refused. Christie just stood there, holding the cup of tea, staring blankly at Eileen. Finally, she broke the awkward silence by claiming that Timothy was due home for any minute, and Christy had left the flat as suddenly as he arrived. As stated, Timothy and Beryl's marriage was fraught with arguing and at times physical attacks, and once Geraldine was born, these seemed to escalate. Timothy was illiterate, didn't earn enough money to provide for his family, and had a drinking problem. It didn't help that Timothy may have had a brief affair with Beryl's friend, Lucy, who had come to live with them to help care for Geraldine. By fall of 1949, Beryl discovered that she was pregnant again. She did not want to bring another baby into her life, with no means to care for it. Beryl was determined to have an abortion, although it was illegal at the time. She stressed her concerns to the Christies. In November, Christie approached Beryl and told her that with his medical background, he had performed a number of successful abortions and offered his services to her. She discussed this possibility with Timothy, but he refused. 
He didn't think what the big deal was, having another child. On the evening of November 6th, Beryl told Timothy she was going forward with the abortion after Timothy noticed there was money missing to pay rent. They got into a verbal argument that turned to slapping. The next morning, Beryl told him again that she was going through with it, but he didn't believe her and went to work. When he arrived home later that day, he was met by John Christie in the hallway, who told Timothy to walk upstairs and he would follow him. When they got to his flat, Christie told him the bad news. The abortion didn't go as planned, and Beryl had died from septic poisoning because she had already tried several other self-abortion remedies. They went to the bedroom where Christie removed the blanket covering Beryl's body, which showed bleeding from her nose, mouth, and vagina. Timothy wanted to report it, but Christie told him not to, as it would get them both in trouble. All he tried to do was help, and with Timothy's history of drinking and domestic violence, the police would charge him with manslaughter. Christie convinced Timothy to keep quiet, and Christie would return later with a plan to cover it up. Christie and Timothy moved Beryl's body to the temporarily vacated second floor flat, and Christie proposed that he would dispose of Beryl's body himself by dumping her body in one of the street drains, but Timothy would have to leave town to separate himself from Beryl's death. Timothy agreed and wanted to take Geraldine to his mother's. Christie convinced Timothy that that would only raise suspicions he knew of a younger couple that would look after Geraldine for the time being, but Timothy would have to leave town, which he did on November 14th. This was the last time that Timothy Evans saw his daughter Geraldine alive. It is believed that on the day Timothy Evans left town for his aunt's house was the day that Christie wrapped a necktie around baby Geraldine's throat and strangled her. There was construction going on in the wash house, so Christie had to leave Geraldine's body in the second floor flat with her mother. Timothy Evans returned to Notting Hill on November 23rd and asked Christie if he could see his daughter. Christie informed Timothy that it wasn't a good idea right now and to return in a couple weeks once everything blew over. Timothy returned to his aunts in Mirtha Tidville. Construction finished on the wash house, and Christie moved both Beryl and Geraldine's body to the wash house and placed boards left over from the construction over the bodies. On November 30th, after feeling pressure from his family, Timothy Evans went to the police, and the rest, as they say, is history. Shortly after Timothy Evans' hanging, it is reported that Christie fell into a deep depression. He lost his job after admitting in court his previous criminal convictions, and he lost 28 pounds. Christie spent three weeks in a mental hospital for observation. They wanted him to stay longer, but he refused. Upon his release, Christie found another job as a clerk, and things for him began to improve. But for reasons unknown, he abruptly quit. He had other things he wanted to do. With Ethel refusing to visit relatives and her constant taunting of his impotence, Christie increasingly grew angered. By December 14, 1952, Ethel mysteriously disappeared. Christie told neighbors that she was visiting family. He told her family that Ethel was sick and in bed. The truth is, Christie strangled Ethel and placed her body underneath the floorboards in their parlor. Christie kept sending letters and gifts to her family saying that Ethel's arthritis made it impossible for her to write the letters herself, 
Christie was now free to do as he pleased. Between January 19th and March 6th of 1953, Christie murdered three more women. Kathleen Maloney, 26, a local prostitute from Ladbroke Grove. Rita Nelson, 25, who was in town from Belfast visiting her sister and who was six months pregnant at the time of her death. And Hectorina McLennan, 26, who was living in London with her boyfriend, Alex Baker. Hectorina and Alex actually stayed with Christie for a short time while they were looking for their own place to live. It would meet them both at the cafe several times after that. After Hectorina's disappearance, Christie still met with Alex to inquire if he had heard any news. On March 20th, 1953, Christie fraudulently subletted his flat to a couple who paid him three months in advance. Christie grabbed a suitcase and left. Later that day, the landlord arrived and saw these strangers in Christie's flat and forced them to leave. Christie stayed in the hotel the next few days until March 24th, when neighbor Beresford Brown made the tragic discovery. Christie wandered the streets of London, unsure of what he was going to do. On March 28th, a police officer noticed Christie near the embankment of Putney Bridge and arrested him. Among the things found by police during a search of his person, a newspaper clipping about the arrest of Timothy Evans. John Christie admitted to the deaths of Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson, and Hectorita McLennan, stating that they were accidental. Then he admitted to the death of his wife, Ethel, once her body was discovered, saying that she overdosed on sleeping pills and he strangled her to ease her suffering. Then the skeletons in the garden were discovered, and he admitted to those murders as well. Finally, on April 27th, he confessed to the murder of Beryl Evans, but stated he had nothing to do with Geraldine's death. This could be for two reasons. One, Timothy Evans was already tried and executed for the death of Geraldine. And two, child murderers are not held in very high regard in prison. By June, Christie told authorities that the skeletons were that of Muriel Edie and Ruth First, giving closure to their families. Christie's trial began on June 22, 1953. He was only charged for the murder of his wife, but the other women were allowed to be mentioned to assist Christie's defense of insanity, who called him a maniac and a madman. However, the psychiatrist for the prosecution quickly debunked this theory, claiming that a man who was insane would not go out of his way to alter his identity as Christie did. The trial lasted only four days, and the jury came back with a guilty verdict in under an hour and a half. He was sentenced to death. On July 15, 1953, Christie was led to the gallows. His executioner was Albert Pierpoint, the same man who hanged Timothy Evans. After being restrained and a noose placed over his head, Christie complained that his nose was itching, to which Pierpoint replied, It won't bother you for long. Christie was hung and buried in an unmarked grave on prison grounds. So what would become of Timothy Evans? There was an uproar over the controversy of his trial, conviction, and death, mainly because it was Christie's testimony that led to his conviction. Prior to Christie's execution, an inquiry was made into Timothy's guilt or innocence, and it was determined that Evans was in fact the murder of Beryl and Geraldine 
again, based on the word of John Christie, who had changed his story and told the Inquisitor that he only confessed to Bell's murder to aid his insanity defense. But this didn't stop the cries of injustice. Another inquiry was conducted in 1965, and it was determined that Evans, more likely than not, killed his wife, but not his daughter, for which he was tried. This led to a posthumous pardon for Timothy Evans for the murder of his daughter in 1966. The murder of Beryl Evans would remain a dark cloud for decades, as neither Evans nor Christie were convicted of her death, but both believed to be the murderer. In 2003, the Home Office awarded Timothy Evans' sister, Eileen Ashby, and his half-sister, Mary Westlake, ex-Gradia payments as compensation for the miscarriage of justice. The assessor ruled that the conviction of Timothy Evans for the murder of his daughter was wrongful and a miscarriage of justice, as well as ruling that there is no evidence to implicate Timothy Evans in the murder of his wife, stating that both murders were likely carried out by John Christie. Although a full pardon was not granted, in 2004, the Court of Appeal ruled that they did not accept the conviction of Timothy Evans for the murder of his daughter or his wife, essentially ruling that Timothy Evans was an innocent man. This episode of Criminal AF Direct was written and produced by me, Dave Jari. For an unfiltered, interactive version of this episode, with myself and co-host Garrett Corder, subscribe to Criminal AF or follow the link in the episode description. Follow at Criminal AF Pod on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube. As always, thank you for listening.